came into like my career, even as a younger person thinking, you know, my supervisor will know how to solve this problem. Or like there is someone that has already solved this problem and they will tell me if I've gotten the right answer and that there is a right answer somewhere. And what I realized over the past years is that there is never really a right answer. You know, the John Legend song, nobody really knows, but everybody knows. It's like people know the trajectory and people know the direction and that, but there isn't like a clear cut right answer. And I think especially in digital health, like we're all in it together. We're like, we're all on that boat together and we're kind of like building it as we go. We're learning from each other. Hi everyone. You're listening to Aid Evolved and I'm your host, Nina Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. It's about the people trying to find a better way to do good. Now, when it comes to health, there are few people who are tasked with answering the big questions. What's actually working? And how do we adopt and scale the innovations that we know are working? Today, we'll be chatting with Tigist Tamrat, a technical officer at the World Health Organization whose job it is to find answers to these incredibly hard questions. She's authored or co-authored some of the most essential reading in this space, including the World Health Organization's recommendations on digital interventions for health system strengthening, as well as the mHealth Assessment and Planning for Scale toolkit, known as MAPS. Now I know what you're thinking. Who has time to read a 100-page document? But if you're going to read one document on the evidence behind digital health, on the pillars of scale, I challenge you to find something better than these documents. Trust me, I've looked. In our conversation today, Tigus gives us a window into the stakeholders and the conflicts and the anxieties that go on behind the scenes when you're putting guidelines like this together at the global scale. Later in the episode, we also share how Tigus found her way to the World Health Organization almost by accident. And we hear her hopes for Ethiopia the country where she was born, and how social enterprises could help Ethiopians lift themselves up. Before we dive in, a quick caveat. This is to guests' personal story and opinions. None of what she says should be construed as the perspective of the WHO or any of its affiliates. We're going to dive right in now with all the questions I had about how do you even come up with something like digital health guidelines for the world? The challenge is that it's like organized chaos in a way because digital <laughs> health isn't linear. It doesn't fit neatly. When you look at it, like you're just dealing with a lot of noise and a lot of insights and it's very hard to put it into like a very structured, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, which is what we end up having to do. You can't put out a document that says, you know, it's a big mess and it's iterative. <laughs> it's so and... nicely structured. That's what I love about it. I'm like, oh yeah, here are the pillars. <laughs> and yeah, and this is like step one, step two, step three, and ta-da, yeah. you have a great digital health investment. I mean, but that's what you want to do because you also don't want to overwhelm people. You're trying to bring clarity and you're trying, but there isn't a lot of clarity. So it's quite a challenge. I think, you know, we just try to glean like what would be the salient thing that needs to happen now? What are like steps one, two, three that you could do for this? Even though there may be like steps one through 10 and that it's not one through 10, but it's like eight comes before two. And you know, like there may be that, but like, we just have to be like, okay, could we still try to figure that out? It's the great thing that WHO has is that we have a lot of convening power. So we're really able to tap into the best minds that are working on this. So a lot of WHO's outputs are not like, maybe I could be a pen holder. We call ourselves secretariat, but it's really trying to reflect 
the viewpoints of many different people. So we're able to really get the people that are really at the forefront and bring them together, have different perspectives from different parts of the world. And that really helps, you know, because when you have access to all these amazing minds from everywhere and people that are really in the trenches, because I have to say, like, we're not in the trenches as much. Like we hear a lot of things and our and our jobs to kind of collate and systematize that. But a lot of the work, what makes it a little bit easier for us is that we have access to these great minds that are then able to say, well, I think this is what we've seen. And then someone else can build on that idea and say, well, actually, maybe we should add this little caveat here. And before you know it, like it's writing itself and you're just kind of like <laughs> recording what people have said and you know, saying, but this person said this, like, do you agree? And then like recirculating. A lot of it is like consensus building. So you say, okay, but I think what we all said in this room now is this, does this make sense? And someone say, well, actually, this is too simplistic. You need to add this, or actually you overcomplicated it. Just say this. It's a very iterative and gradual process, but um, the convening power of WHO really helps because we're able to just go to the people that are doing these things and just say like, what do you think? It's a matter of like piecing together different pieces of puzzles for us. But the work itself is partly done by the people that are telling us, you know, what to do or through the systematic reviews or whatever um, underlying information base that we're going to be using. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds so hard, you know, across time zones and cultures and languages and ways of deciding things and ways of communicating. Is there, I don't know, like, is there a particular gray area that you remember like really struggling with as you're putting together some of these guidelines or, or a particular tactic uh, that you used to get consensus because, because you make it sound easy and I can't imagine it was. <laughs> no, definitely. I mean, and that's why WHO products take forever to come out in a way. I mean, like we work, you know, this nice like document will take maybe two years to create because there's like so many iterations and meetings. And, but I remember one specifically like the classification of digital health interventions. That was one document that, we're really trying to find like a vocabulary, a common way to talk about digital health. And the premise of it is that people were talking about things in many different ways. So even just trying to kind of stop that and say, okay, let's talk about it in this particular way. Like, let's call it this one mm. term in itself was a challenge. I think we try to just use whatever methods, like we used methods of having people just input into a spreadsheet and then just seeing like, what's the common theme? Or if I said this, like how badly would people react? Like, is there anyone that would just completely veto it? Or can we just move on? There will be compromises along the way. And you just try to figure out how many people will really, will say, okay, we can live with this. What can we live with and what can we not? So a lot of it is trying to figure out those compromises. It's, it's, sometimes feels like an art because you say, okay, this might be okay to leave in now. We have to come back to it. And there's times where even um, like in the classification of digital health interventions, we couldn't always come to a consensus on different terms. So we called it a version one. That works. Knowing that we're going to have to come back to it because we're like, okay, we know not everyone's going to be happy, but we just need <laughs> something. And, you know, the more we wait, the more we create to like proliferation of more terms that we're going to have to try to like come back and like standardize. So the sooner we have it out, the better that we limit this proliferation of like, you know, multiple terms being used, which is what we're trying to kind of curb. And so I think we try to just put something that we could feel, okay, this will be able to withstand things. There may be like 10% of things that we're just living with and we'll hope that in a future version we can address. Yeah. Or we try to provide examples if there's like outliers to what 
what we're saying and this doesn't fit in. We're like, well, in some cases, like you may want to consider this. That makes sense. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's an ongoing thing and you never feel like you're done. (laughs) You release something you're like, oh, you know, I guess we could have done this a little bit better. Such is the joy of policy. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad that to you, it seems like a clean process. (laughs) What is success look like for you in the publication of something like that? Like you put all this effort in, you've come up with these guidelines that you know are being used around the world. What does that feel like on your end? Like, do you even know, or do you just kind of like put it out there in the world? And like, we, we do try to have some metrics of like how our guidelines are, you know, and resources that we're using are being used and ways that we can improve the uptake of them. So success would be like, someone saying, oh, you know, we did this or we changed something because we saw this. And that has happened a few times, like with the MAPS toolkit people or with the classifications or even with the digital investment implementation guide or other tools, the M&E guide as well, the monitoring and evaluation of digital health interventions that we did with Johns Hopkins University. But they wouldn't necessarily tell you, you know, like most people would get it. Well, you find it like in a research paper, like, you know, you find <laughs> something that says like, you, you read like a paper and it says, we established our log frame based on, on this, or you go and you read, like, I remember my colleague saying he went to an office in South Africa where someone had the classifications of digital health interventions posted on their wall, or, you know, people like actually referring to it in, I, I went to presentation and I saw people just using the terms and saying, okay, like we're doing this and this and this, and like projecting the, the tools and saying, okay, we're using this term as per like the classification. So it's nice. I think we try as much as possible for it to be taken up organically, but we also do try to have mechanisms where we're like, okay, we need for, you know, with donors, working with donors, for example, to say, okay, make sure that when you receive something, they're using this framework to do it. And so that's one way, I guess it's like the carrot versus like some, sometimes (laughs) you can try to, we can try to lobby ways or try to find ways to assess and ensure uptake. At the same time, we'd like to see when things are done organically. And sometimes you catch that in presentations or when you're talking to people and they say, oh, you know, we use this to design our digital health program. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, or we use this to evaluate it or we use this checklist and then it's kind of reassuring. One one last question just on, on that topic is how does that accountability work for you? Like I can tell looking at, I don't know if you call it DIG, <laughs> um, the, impl- the investment guidelines or the mouse still like I, I can tell like a lot of quality went into that. Uh, yeah. I guess my question is how does that accountability work within WHO? Like, is, is it just like each individual needs to ensure that they deliver something of WHO standards? Um, or is there some other mechanism by which they like recognize and promote great, great products um, and, and hide the bad ones? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I think so one of the things that WHO is notorious for is like bureaucracies and to get something out, it has to go through like multiple, multiple levels of reviewers. So there's different mechanisms for different types of products. So it has to go through like, you know, a steering group that was established. You have to show a lot of transparency and like who reviewed things. And there's an ultimately like there's a publication clearing committee that checks to say, okay, was this done? And how did you establish the need for this document and who reviewed it and what was their feedback? And there's like lots of forms that you have to fill out. And then they (laughs) assess whether like, (laughs) and then they assess there's like a planning clearance before you do it. Then there's an executive clearance that checks that if you did the things that you did. So that makes total sense. There's like a lot (laughs) of organization like WHO. Yeah. Before you could put the logo on any 
like big document, there's a lot of checks that happen both internally to make sure it's gone through certain clearing processes, as well as they check, you know, who, what's the regional balance of the reviewers that contributed to this, you know, or even like the gender balance. Like there's a lot of other ways, you know, where different thematic um, leads uh, consulted. There's, it's not perfect, you know, and I think um, there's a lot of, uh, initiatives at WHO to even try to enhance this. Uh, I think the recent focus at WHO now is not so much on, it's still on the quality of the product, but there's a lot of increased focus now on like country uptake and trying to figure out, you know, not just about releasing great products that are amazing. You could put them on a shelf, but like, what is the <laughs> uptake of them? And so there's a lot of new processes that at, from WHO that I think will be coming oh out to not just, to not just make sure that our documents are like, of a certain standard, but that they're of a certain standard that's going to be usable and primarily with the audience of like countries and um, ministries in mind, you know, obviously if like NGOs find them usable, that's great. But I think the new initiatives that are going to be coming out from WHO on trying to make sure that these products are like that are, are more so coming from the perspective of like, how can we improve country uptake? That'll be fascinating to see when it comes out. Tegas, last, last question I, w- I wanted to run by you was just like, I've talked a lot about the products that I'm a fan of (laughs) as I do, but on your end, is there, is there a product that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of that you wanted to highlight, or is there a, you know, a story or a person that you've worked with over your, over the course of your time at WHO um, that has really influenced the way that you do this work? Proud of like many of the resources. I think the guideline on digital health interventions for health system strengthening is one document that I think it's not um, operational, but it's, it really drives, tries to synthesize where we're at in digital health and where we're kind of lacking the measures that we want to see. Like, you know, it was really trying to see like, what's the underlying evidence base for all the things that we do and what's the resulting impact of it and formulate recommendations. And this actually follows a very strict process at WHO. I mean, there's, you, you can't clear guidelines without a very strict process that's in place. I think that was a labor of love in a way, just because it really tried to bring together everything that we've seen and use a very systematic approach to saying, okay, like for X intervention, you know, for sending messages like targeted client communication, what do we know about it? What impact have we seen? What are the challenges of it? And I I really, you know, I think that was, it's not something that tells you like go and implement it in this way, but it really just try to synthesize like the state of where things are in some of the very key digital health interventions that have emerged. Let me take a step back here and provide a bit of context to the work that Tigas is talking about. See, it's easy for someone like me, Rowena, to provide my opinion on any number of topics. I'm overflowing with opinions about things. But when you publish guidelines for the World Health Organization, you're doing something incredibly powerful. As you know, the WHO is the single global coordinating body on public health. That means that they were the ones that declared COVID-19 a pandemic in March of 2020. When their guidelines recommend a new vaccine schedule or a new way to think about and treat high-risk pregnancy, healthcare providers change the way they work. That means that when Tickist is working on creating guidelines for digital health, they need to know that they're right, or at least that they're speaking to the best knowledge that humanity has available right now. And if you look in the guidelines, there's some pretty specific 
recommendations in there. For example, should we be using mobile phones to notify of deaths? Turns out there's no evidence on effectiveness of mobile devices for death notification. Should we use digital health to connect providers to each other so that they can swap notes, brainstorm, and coach each other on the delivery of care? Yes. And when it gets to some of the complex topics, like targeted messaging to individuals in a community about behavior change, it admits the answer is kind of complex. And you can't make statements like that unless you spend a ton of time reading, understanding, and synthesizing the latest evidence. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Is there enough evidence? Is it consistent? Is it rigorous? How many studies have been done? Where did the studies come from? Who did the studies? Were there conflicts of interest? TIGIST is one part of the whole machinery that's in place to do this evidence review. She works with the Guideline Development Group, the External Review Group, the Systematic Review Team, and a host of other actors that make these guidelines possible. She had a ton of thanks to give to all of her collaborators along the way. You know, working at WHO, without calling out specific names, the team that I was in, like with my supervisor, was really amazing because it was always trying to ask, trying to be ahead of the questions that people will ask and trying to like provide it in ways that could be digestible through frameworks or through images, you know, using like the Gartner hype life cycle and other ways that um, could actually translate what all these complexities that we're thinking about in a simplified way. So I really appreciated that. I think worked with colleagues at Johns Hopkins University that really have just always really pushing us to ask the ask questions and really simplify some of the questions as well that people are asking. It's like what people really want to know is just this or the process that we've talked about is like so many different things, but actually it could just really be these five things. And so really appreciate colleagues there that have helped. And then all the country partners that we've worked with, the ministries of health, it's just been always insightful every time you're on a call or a meeting to say, well, what we want to know is this or like what the root of the problem for us is this. And then that helps you. So it's, it's been quite rewarding. I guess that's why I'm still there because you get, to, you get all these amazing insights together at the country level, getting to work with like ministries and hearing what they have to say firsthand, then getting to work with like really creative people to see how to explain that information and being in the middle of all that to just kind of be like a translator. <laughs> that sounds super fun. Translator, cat herder, consensus builder, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lightning rod. <laughs> Lots of, lots of words for that role. <laughs> Tigga spends a good chunk of her life wading through the latest evidence and talking to some of the top researchers in the world. You have to wonder whether a job like that makes you feel a little bit closer to truth. Do the answers start to feel clear? You know, one thing that has really come to light for me is that we're building the ship as we sail. That's always fun. <laughs> yeah. And I always came into like my career, even as a younger person thinking I'm going to solve this problem. And like the person that I'm, you know, my supervisor will know how to solve this problem. Or like there is someone that has already solved this problem and they will tell me if I've gotten the right answer and that there is a right answer somewhere. And what I've realized over the past years is that there is never really a right answer and nobody, you know, the John Legend song, like nobody really knows, but everybody knows. It's like people know <laughs> what they're, what's like, people know the trajectory and people know the direction and that, but there isn't like a clear cut right answer. And I think especially in digital health, like we're all in it together. We're like, we're all on that boat together and we're kind of like building it as we go. We're learning from each other. 
and we know where we want to go. Like we know there's an endpoint somewhere. There's like land probably, you know, that we're going to get to. And we know that it's land that we want to get to. But I also just think, I always thought like people knew the direction. It's like, you know, sail this way and this is how you'll do it. And I actually realized that, nope, people don't know. Like people, it's not to- Oh my God. People, like, That's terrifying. I'm getting a little heart, heart pump. <laughs> what? <laughs> we're just rotating through the cosmos? <laughs> no, but like, I think it's, I had the expectation that people would say like, this is the right answer. Yep, we got it. We solved it. And it's actually like, this is the right direction. This is where we want to go. And let's figure out how to do it together is more of where I would, you know, tell my younger self as well that, you know, you grow up thinking like your parents know what to do, but then you ask your parents now and they're like, well, I guess this could be okay. And you're like, but you guys are supposed to like know what to do for me. Right. Like, and I think it's the same way going through the career is like we're exploring and we have good intent and we know where we want to go and we're trying to do it all together. I just love those words from Tigest. It's not about having the right answer. As the evidence is constantly changing and technology is evolving every day, it's about heading in the right direction and doing it together. But let's take a moment and wind back the clock a bit. Let's find out more about this woman who's trying to create knowledge out of chaos. Tigas was born in Ethiopia, but raised in Cote d'Ivoire, in Abidjan, in West Africa. She lived there for most of her childhood until she was a teenager when her family moved to the United States, right around the time of 9-11 and all the xenophobia that took the country. Despite her parents' advice, she studied African history in college. And then she found her way back to Ethiopia. Immediately after I finished my first degree, I went back to Ethiopia and I was like, I want to, you know, even if it was, it was initially a volunteership, which then changed into a job, but I really wanted to go into public health. And at the time there was a lot of health issues in Ethiopia. There was a lot of malnutrition. There was a drought happening in the Southeast. There were also issues about, you know, increasing institutional deliveries of, of, uh, for pregnant women to, to give birth at health health centers as opposed to giving birth at home and trying to avoid the unnecessary deaths that come along with that. And so, you know, this was for, for the young altruistic me, this was exactly where I wanted to be. But then I also thought when we finish one project, we're just going to go do the project again. You know, like say you address malnutrition, you're just waiting for the next grant again to address malnutrition again. And I kind of wanted to see alternative models of that. And I, and I started finding that the traditional models of how I perceived public health, where, you know, you have institutions in higher income countries trying to serve institutions or people in lower income institutions. I mean, I think that's really great, but then it's not really sustainable. And I, and while I was doing my work, in thinking about my colleagues, you know, other fellow Ethiopians that were working there, I saw that the greatest benefit to actually improving health was employment and making sure people were able to know what to do when their children were sick, be able to have the ability to access health services, for health services to actually be able to provide the right services with quality of care. I mean, and I think a lot of that happens when you have better jobs for people when there's like, when people aren't living like in poverty. And so I started dabbling into how can we also introduce and thinking about how can we also introduce, you know, some type of um, 
private sector aspect to health? How can we introduce more employment? And in fact, I wanted to even launch a company really? <laughs> when I was in Ethiopia. Huh. What kind of company? It was a company that was really going to work on like manufacturing of health commodities because I realized that there was a huge shortage. And I was thinking, how can we still improve and address public health issues, which is still a continued passion. It's a, it's a lifelong passion, but how could we do it in ways where people may still be able to get jobs and we're contributing to like overall development as well. And, Did you do it? and I actually tried, I, I signed up for a lot of contests and I, nice. I, it, I tried to register the company as well, but then it was in just Ethiopia. a lot of in Ethiopia. Yeah. And it's something that I continue to explore. There's a colleague of, um, uh, there's a person that I have engaged as like a business partner and we, you know, it's something that maybe in the, in the next five to six years, I hope to get back into. I had no idea. A little bit Your more. Your secret life. <laughs> <Take us. laughs> We're going to have to do another interview about that business when it launches. <laughs> but yeah, and I was really curious about how can we also provide employment and ways to raise the human development in the country. So that could also impact public health as well. Can you share a little bit more about that project specifically? Like what was your role and what was the moment where you thought, I don't know, like we could do this better? It really came out of, there was this cholera slash acute watery, acute watery diarrhea outbreak that happened while I was working in Ethiopia. And at the time there were just no gloves and no disinfectants and just basic commodities in the country. And so we were like, you know, going and applying for grant funding to bring it in to the country. And I, and I thought about it. I was like, this is, you know, we need this stopgap measure. Definitely. We need gloves, but why couldn't we manufacture gloves and additional commodities? And in that way, that's a great example. We address the gaps in the health system, you know, where availability of medical supplies or just availability of health, you know, commodities. And then at the same time, we're generating employment and we're actually, you know, helping to channel people that are looking for jobs into some somewhere that then they can help feed their families better so that they're not, so that the malnutrition issue also is kind of addressed. And then they're able to actually access health services. And I think there's a lot of like residual things that come along with employment and improved standing, you know, improved developmental standing. Definitely I have an attachment to Ethiopia. And I think, which is why the, when I was working, it wasn't just about, okay, how do we make sure this child gets the right, you know, micronutrients so that they're not malnourished. It wasn't, it was beyond that for me. It wasn't just, you know, how do we make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do in this grant? It was like, okay, how can we actually improve the standing of the country? How can we like evolve Ethiopia even further beyond just the traditional models of public health that I kind of had come to see? And so it, it is a strong attachment. I think there was a lot of passion in, in it. You know, I didn't see I, what I was doing just as a job, but I was thinking, oh, what opportunities can come from this? So yes, there was like a, an, a, a diarrheal disease outbreak that really influenced me a lot because I was like, oh my God, we don't have the gloves in place. And we should, we should be able to like, you know, create these. And this, if we create it, then it's like a win-win. People have jobs. People are like, there's like accountants being hired. There's people in like, you know, fact, manufacturing sectors that are being hired. And there's also like getting gloves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And they're going to need gloves, even if there isn't another cholera. Exactly. Outbreak. So and I'm, I'm guessing you also know people as well that 
like when you say there's talent in the country, like when you know that talent, when you met them and you see them yourself, uh, it's it's real in a way that it isn't uh, when, when someone else tells you that or you read it on paper. So I think that also has a big influence. Yes. I worked for about two years there and I was really interested in like the innovation space, you know, how can we, the talents, like for example, one thing in this NGO that I was working at, there was the IT person that was just fixing our printers. He was brilliant. He ended up getting a job at Microsoft and left. And I was like, wow, you know, like, <laughs> what if we had something that could actually attract and, and, you know, went to Seattle. And I was like, what if we could have attracted something so that this person that's super talented wasn't just fixing printers, but like had a place to innovate and we could do great things, you know? So those were some of the things that kind of piqued my interest even more in this idea. That makes so much sense because obviously if you had to choose between fixing printers in Ethiopia or working for Microsoft in Seattle, what is anyone going to pick? Yeah. And what are the opportunities to help you channel ideas that you may have? And here, I mean, I think there was this side note, <laughs> there was this really important <laughs> meeting during this time. I have a great friend in Rwanda and I went to Rwanda to visit her and we were in a meeting and it was like a meeting about like how with the youth. And one of the really interesting things was someone and the youth said, we don't have time to create new light bulbs because we're trying to pay the electric bills for our light bulbs, you know? So like <laughs> it's sometimes like innovation and thinking about ways to do things differently is a luxury because, you know, you're just trying yes. to like, you're just trying to make sure that even if you're really talented, you just want a job at this point. Like you just want something that's going to pay your bills, but you're, you don't have that luxury to say, okay, like, let me look into venture funding for this really cool idea. So even this IT person, if he had like a really good startup idea that could have been great for digital health, even, I think it's just like, I have to fix printers because that's going to be the way that I feed my family. And that's kind of the reality of how things are. So, yeah, no, I hear you. Like sometimes people will have a, you know, like a funding opportunity or a business competition, but the people who are able to write uh, like a good business competition, put days and weeks into that and then submit it. People can only do that if they aren't juggling three other jobs and supporting a family and, you know, like exactly. working nights and weekends and stuff like it is have like those opportunities require unpaid work, even just to get the chance of accessing them. And that's tough. Exactly. Tegas went back to school in order to get her master's in public health. But just a few months after she graduated, she found herself back in Ethiopia this time with a different nonprofit focused on reproductive health and access to family planning services. She stayed there for two and a half years, all the while still dreaming of the company she wanted to create. Were you scheming in your nights and weekends about the, the oh, business definitely. you were going to start? <laughs> definitely. Like it was like the first thing, you know, like job ends and it's like, all right, let me write another grand proposal. Or like, let me, and yeah. And, you know, it, it is something I had a lot of support, I would say, from people in Ethiopia, from family and even like my parents, they're like, oh, this is, you know, have you done your market analysis? Like, what are you going to do first? And like, you know, have you huh. understood like, sound why? like business people? <laughs> yeah, we should, they're not, but it was really, <laughs> it was, um, they were very encouraging about it, but I, I don't know. I don't know what made me like not continue pursuing it. I think there, I still saw, I still saw like, you know, I need to save up more or like, I need to do, you know, I, I want to get back to this. So how was it that WHO was able to to grab you out of that NGO that you're working for and and bring you on board? And also, how, how have they been able to keep you so many years? Yeah, I mean, I think for the keeping part, 
digital health is something that just constantly evolves. So even though I joke with some of my colleagues that joined at the same time as me, and they've moved on to doing many different things, you know, they worked on one thing and then they are in a different team or in a different section of WHO. And I've been working probably like, you know, from an outsider's view on the same issues, like it's still the same digital health, but to me, digital health has evolved so much. So when I joined WHO in early 2014, it was still at the very peak of mHealth enthusiasm. And that's when like the things like the MAPS toolkit were starting to be needed. And then now, I mean, we're thinking a lot more about how do we sustain country investments and the bigger issues about interoperability. So the questions keep evolving, which for me has been part of why I stay because it's not the same thing. And I think that's really exciting because I think digital health just continues to evolve. Um, And the questions that we're asking ourselves sometimes seem like they're the same, but then they're also different. I joined WHO, I think, you know, during the time that I was in grad school, I was working for the Health Innovation Technology Lab affiliated with Columbia University. And and, And there we had done a lot of digital health research related work, both domestically, like with fall detection sensors, telemedicine work within the US, as well as looking abroad to see um, at the time, like learning a little bit more about what was happening in Ghana with MoTeC and a lot of the mHealth innovations at the time that were being kicked off. So I also think at that time, you know, in the early to mid 2010 decade, there wasn't the, the, the pool of people working in digital health was quite small, so or smaller than it is now. So I think if you had done something related to, I had done a systematic review on how mHealth was being applied for reproductive maternal and newborn child health. And I think at that time, I mean, now we have like hundreds and hundreds of systematic reviews, but I think at that time there were probably like a handful or maybe, you know, a dozen of systematic reviews. So it was very easy. I think um, my supervisor at the time was able to say, oh, okay, that's one of the authors of the systematic reviews at that time. You know, this was published like in 2011, which 10 years ago, I think may have been a bit more, you know, it, it made, it was a little bit more recognizable. I think now, you know, definitely the space has expanded quite a bit. That maybe wouldn't have been the same. I think it was being at the right time at the right place for me. <laughs> That makes sense. When I, when I think of the World Health Organization, I, I think of them as the global leaders, you know, setting policy for how health, not just digital health, but like health systems are, are implemented. And so there's lots of great draws, you know, to that, to that cause and to that effort. Was that the case for you? Like, were you expecting, were you, were you angling, trying to find your way into WHO or did, did they find you? Yeah, I think it was a combination, you know, because I definitely, yes, hold held WHO in high esteem when I was applying for the job. I mean, I still do, but you know, <laughs> every every public health person knows WHO. You know, when you say it's the WHO, so obviously yeah. it was a place like when I applied for the job, I was like, oh, this would be an amazing opportunity, and I, um, so I regarded it as such. I was also it wasn't like my end goal in life wasn't like, I need one day to find a way to join WHO. I mean, my end goal was actually like, I need to find, I need to go back and find a way to do that other project that I mentioned earlier. But um, <laughs> when an opportunity like this comes up, it's, it, it's, you know, you take it. So I think it wasn't, it was a combination of both, you know, it, 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 it was quite fortuitous that it happened that way. It wasn't, you know, my lifelong dream that one day I need to end up here, but 
I, I got the opportunity to be there. I mean, you can't plan life. That's part of the fun. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, so. it's, got its, it's got its reasons that reasons cannot know. So just to wrap up our show, to guess a few questions for you as part of our rapid fire segment. Uh, is there a request and, or an ask that you'd make for donors or policymakers listening to this podcast? I think donors have done a, a great job actually in the past few years to really listen to what's happening in countries. So I would just say like for us to continue listening to what's actually happening, you know, there's the real needs versus imagined needs and really trying to figure out how to address the real needs. And I think that a lot of that has been happening. Um, and so just to continue listening to what, what people are saying on the ground, that's something I also try to do even, you know, being based in Geneva, it, it's also a challenge to try to make sure that you're always grounded in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Reading, what is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? So definitely the Global Digital Health Network listserv is for the industry for digital health. I think it's amazing. And it's just something that's like very organic in the sense that people will want to contribute to it. So, you know, when I want to know what's been published, what's going on, what people are doing that I try to, you know, it has a pulse on, um, on what's happening in digital health. So I try to stay close to seeing that. And I think a lot of the regional listservs, I know this doesn't necessarily maybe like a resource per se, but I think just seeing what the interactions are on these different listservs definitely is a way to stay up to date. Absolutely. And a, a listserv is a, a fancy word for an email list. An email list. <laughs> <Just submit. laughs> an email list. <laughs> Last question, just for fun. Is there a book, a blog, or a podcast that you'd recommend just from personal interest? Yeah, there's one that was kind of mind-blowing for me, which was Scrum. And it's the art of how you do time management. And it was quite fascinating. It's not the type of book I normally read. I, I really read like a lot of fiction, but I was on a plane and I just read, found it and I, I read it. It's really interesting, you know, because it just applies to how we can just be better at doing what we're doing. Nice. I love that you're, you're, you're referencing Scrum even not for the purposes of software development, but just to manage your time effectively. I so, so true. So true. Thank you so much to yes, for your time today. It's been a joy having you on the show. Thank you. Likewise. So here's a smart, hardworking woman who's passionate about Ethiopia, who really believes in the power of social enterprises. And yet somehow she's found herself with the World Health Organization for almost 10 years now. And this is a story you hear over and over and over again. Top talent find themselves drawn towards the global and international public and private sector players, even if there's that seed of, what can I create? for myself or my country? What can we do to create employment or create wealth at the same time that we're trying to make change? Like Tigis, I'm fascinated by the possibilities that exist with social enterprises. I want to learn more about that kind of scalable agent for change. How it fits and how it doesn't fit with aid sector work and funding. Which is why, for season two of this podcast, We're going to zoom in on the stories and the experiences of social enterprises. Come join me on this journey. Subscribe to this podcast, share it with a friend. And if you know of any amazing social enterprises that are moving and shaking out there, get them on the show. Send me a note at rowena at aidevolved.com. We'll see you in two weeks.